Some of the strongest words of rebuke that came from the lips of Jesus in the Gospels uh, were spoken, perhaps surprisingly, not to the prostitutes or the tax collectors or any of those other characters in society that were so outwardly sinful. Rather, some of Jesus' strongest words of rebuke were spoken to the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, who outwardly appeared to be holy men and who thought themselves to be holy men, but who, Jesus said, inwardly had hardened hearts of stone that were far from the Lord. And if you remember, Jesus called them some really terrible things, like children of their father, the devil, and hypocrites, and whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but dead on the inside. Pretty harsh. The Pharisees had what the Puritan Thomas Brooks called a painted holiness. That is a a kind of exterior holiness wallpaper covering up who they really were on the inside, like a picture hung up on a wall to cover a hole. I'm sure none of you have done that. And in our passage this morning, we'll see God through the prophet Malachi confronting the priests of Judah, much in the same way that Jesus, hundreds of years later, would confront the Pharisees over a painted holiness they wore on the outside, which was beginning to crack and peel, exposing something ugly underneath. And as we'll see, that ugly thing underneath the priests' painted holiness was a begrudging attitude toward God's worship. A begrudging attitude toward God's worship, meaning though these priests day after day dragged their feet to the temple and washed themselves and put on the holy garments and offered the sacrifices and worshiped God, their hearts weren't really in it. And it was actually more of a chore than a joy to them. In other words, they did it but they didn't really want to do it. Kind of like how many of us get out of bed in the morning, begrudgingly, right? And this kind of hardness of heart, as we'll see, must be met with hard words, just as a a, a tough steak must be met with a mallet in order to tenderize it to make it softer. And so as we get into uh, into the passage, Don't be alarmed or put off by the severity of the words God will have for the Judean priests. Rather, see that God in his grace is saying what needs to be said, even though it may hurt, in order to wake them up out of their spiritual slumber and to soften their calloused hearts and to lead them to repentance in order to heal some deep, inner wounds that they aren't even aware of and are crippling their walks with him. Okay, let me pray for us and then we'll look at the passage. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, show us wondrous things that magnify your glory and move our hearts to worship. Lord, I ask, please do not leave a single heart here unchanged this morning, but send your spirit now in a special way to write the truths of your holy word upon our our hearts, Lord. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So if you turn to the the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, and turn back one book, you'll find Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. And this morning, we're gonna be looking at Malachi's second of six wake-up calls to renewed covenant fidelity to the Judeans, which will be in chapter one, verse six, through chapter two, verse nine. Okay, Malachi chapter one, verse six, through chapter two, Verse nine this morning. So this wake up call begins with God saying in verse 6a, a son honors his father. 
and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. So the very first thing God says to the Judean priests is something that would have immediately rung true in their ears. A son honors his father. Of course a son honors his father because as teachers of the law, this was something that the priests taught, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. But then, like the prophet Nathan in his confrontation with David, God essentially holds up a mirror to the priests' faces and says, okay, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Which is to say, you hypocrites. <laughs> you hypocrites, those words cannot ring true in your ears if you do not honor and revere me, your heavenly father and master. And then we read this interesting back and forth between God and the priests, verse, verses six B through eight. But you priests say, how have we despised your name? And then God responds, verse seven, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. In high school, uh, my first job was working as a dishwasher at a little cafe in downtown Arlington. And as part of my job, when I brought those dirty dishes back into the kitchen, before I rinsed them off and threw them into the dishwasher, I scraped all the leftover food off of them into a big garbage can under the sink. And then at the end of the night, I dragged that garbage can out into the back alley and helped load it onto a truck, which was then taken to a farm where those leftovers were thrown to the pigs. And just imagine if our governor had sat down in that cafe and upon seeing him, I reached down into that stinky garbage can and pulled out a big dripping handful of slop and then plopped it onto a dirty plate and then brought it personally to his table and set it before him. What would that communicate? It would communicate that I believed he was no better than a pig. It would communicate utter contempt and disrespect. It would be a disgraceful thing to do, a, a terrible way to treat a person, especially in that high position, right? And this is exactly how the priests of Judah have treated the holy God of the universe contemptuously, disrespectfully, disgracefully, terribly, because these sacrificial laws required offerings of the choicest animals, the very best of the flock, the proverbial filet mignon, and would a holy God deserve anything less? But instead, the offerings that were given were of the worst of the flock, the blind and the lame and the sick animals, basically all the ones that nobody wanted anymore. The priests of Judah offered the holy God proverbial slop. And then Malachi speaks up personally, saying, verse, six, uh, verse 9a, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us, Guys, we need to repent and plead for God's mercy after what we've done. And then God continues, verse 9b through 10. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Can you imagine, can you imagine if the voice of God himself suddenly thundered throughout our building this morning saying, everyone out, I am not pleased by your worship. It makes me sick. 
Shut the doors and go home, every one of you. That's what God is saying here to these priests. Just stop. Just stop. No worship is preferable to your worshipless worship. And then God continues, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, meaning from the east to the west, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a pretty radical statement because in the ancient Near East, you know, every nation and people and culture had their own pantheon of various gods and goddesses. But God says here that a day is coming when the nations of the earth will be praising his great name. And he says it will be a pure offering, which means that these nations won't simply add Yahweh to their list of deities they worship, but that they will worship Yahweh alone, exclusively, purely, without mixture. And then God continues, verse 12, but you, priests, profane it. You profane my great and holy name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. So think about this. When the priests would say things like uh, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter six, which they recited every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and so on and so forth. When the priests would say things like that, but then immediately turn around and say, ah, you know, blind, lame, sick animals, all those will do just fine as an offering to the Lord. Not only was that hypocritical and contradictory, but it was blasphemous, profanity. I mean, it's like saying, set a table for the king of kings, and then immediately turning around and saying, pig slop and toilet water will do just fine. It's disgusting. It's profane. And then God continues, verse 13a, but you say, ugh, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Here's that ugly, begrudging attitude. Ugh, it's so exhausting worshiping you. It's such a chore. It's such a drudgery. So now, the priests are trying to justify their foot dragging and, and hardness of heart by pointing the finger at God, saying, you weary us. You fatigue us. You make this job way too difficult. I mean, sure, sure, a few of the animals aren't up to your insane expectation, but sheesh, give us a break. But considering that this is the holy God of the universe these priests are dealing with, they ought to be overwhelmed and astounded by the fact that of all the people on the face of the earth, God has chosen them to be his people and has called them specifically to this most privileged position as his priests. And they ought to be astounded, overwhelmed and astounded by the fact that a temple a, a physical place on earth where God's special heavenly presence dwells among them even exists. And they ought to be overwhelmed and astounded by the fact that God has made a way for purification and atonement to be made for sin when mankind could never purify himself and atone for his sin on his own. But far from being overwhelmed and astounded by such grace, the priests of Judah have overlooked and abused God's grace by elevating themselves above who they really are 
and by lowering God below who he really is. And this has led to feelings of entitlement and exasperation and to this ugly, begrudging attitude toward God's worship. And then God reiterates some things he said earlier in verses 13b through 14 saying, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts and my name will be feared among the nations. And then going into chapter two, God concludes his feelings on the matter saying, verses one through nine, this is a little bit of a long passage. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So there are four important things we, we see here. Number one, we see what God thinks of the priest's offerings and he considers them as dung. Verse three, because, verse eight tells us, they cause many to stumble and because they corrupt the covenant God made with the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe from whom God called the Old Testament priests. And number two, we see what is the consequence of the priest's offerings and that is covenant cursing rather than covenant blessing. Verse two, and that the priests will be despised and abased before the people of Judah. Verse nine. And number three, we see what is the purpose of this consequence, and that is that God's covenant with Levi may stand. Verse four, meaning God intends to lead the priests to repentance so that the, the priesthood will continue in the way that he intended. And number four, we see what a godly priest ought to look like. And God uses the past Levitical priests as the example. And that is a priest who draws his life and, and peace from God. And a priest who speaks true instruction and no wrong. And a priest who guards knowledge. And a priest who walks with God uprightly. And a priest who fears God and stands in awe of his great name. And that's Malachi's second wake-up call. And I know what some of you may be thinking at this point. You may be thinking, well, it looks like I'm off the hook for this one because I'm not a priest. So this must not really apply to me. But if that's what you're thinking, then I'm sorry to tell you, you're missing one important piece of this whole story. And that is that the priests of Judah were the ones who performed the animal sacrifices. 
but it was the people of Judah who brought the priests, the animals, to sacrifice. In other words, the blind and the lame and the sick animals that the priests wrongfully offered upon the altar to God in worship were offerings from the people, which means that that ugly, begrudging attitude originated in the people. People just like you and me. But if you noticed, God doesn't say anything about the people in this passage. Instead, he holds the priests responsible for this sin. And that's because the priests were the God-ordained representatives of the people before God. Kind of like how, uh, if you remember Adam, he was the God-ordained representative of humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And so, in order to bring spiritual reformation to his people, God would begin with the priests, okay? And this call to worship him rightly. To worship him rightly. That's the application from this passage. Super simple. Worship God rightly. Worship God in the way that he deserves to be worshiped. Worship him rightly. But a good question is, how would God really change his priests and subsequently his people? Because, you know, it's one thing to reform one's actions and the works of the hands, but it's a whole other thing to reform one's attitude and the inner workings of the heart, right? Like, it's one thing to start doing the right thing from a place of strict conformation. But it's a whole other thing to start wanting to do the right thing from a place of true transformation, right? It's, Jesus says it's one thing to clean the outside of a cup, but it's a whole other thing to clean the inside of a cup. It's one thing to put up a new picture over the hole in the wall, but it's a whole other thing to say no more pictures and to resolve to repair the hole. You get what I'm saying? So how would God really change his priests and his people in a way that wouldn't just make them all little Pharisees, but in a way that would truly tenderize and transform their hearts? And how does God intend to similarly change you and me here today? Well, we see the answer we see the motivation for worshiping God rightly right here in the text because throughout this wake-up call, as we see God revealing the priest's sin, at the very same time, we see him doing something else. We see him reminding the priests of who he is. And he does this intentionally in four different ways to get this to really sink in as he calls himself a father, a master, the Lord of hosts, and a great king. So let's, let's briefly look at these four names and what they mean for us personally, okay? So first, God calls himself a father. So the question for us is, how does the recognition of God as father tenderize and transform our hearts? How does the recognition of God as father tenderize and transform our hearts? Well, scripture tells us that by nature, as descendants of our forefather, Adam, we're all born into this world under the curse of sin, which alienates us, separates us from God. And therefore, by nature, none of us can call God our father. But it's even worse than that because Genesis 3.15 says that by nature and because of the fall, we're offspring of the serpent. We're, we're by nature a part of his fallen family and thus Ephesians chapter two verse three says that by nature we are children of wrath. Children of wrath. So the way we become children of God, the way we come to call God Abba, Father, the way we become a part of God's family, Ephesians chapter one verse five tells us is by spiritual adoption by being born again and by receiving a new nature by the Holy Spirit who comes to us by grace through faith 
in God's son, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the forefather of a new adoptive humanity whom he purchased with his own blood. Here's how I think of it uh, personally. What it took for God the Father to adopt me, a sinner born under the curse and bound for hell, what it took for God the Father to adopt me out of the satanic serpent orphanage was the abandonment of Christ, the sinless son, unto death, where upon the cross he became my curse and tasted the hell that I deserved and was struck in the process of crushing the serpent's head. And this curse-bearing, hell-tasting, serpent-crushing love and mercy, which finds even the vilest spiritual orphan, even the chief of sinners, ought to move our hearts to the deepest repentance over all the ways we've dishonored our Heavenly Father and have abused his amazing grace and have taken our sonship and daughtership for granted. Knowing God as Father and understanding what it took for us to become his children is a grace so amazing that no prodigal child of God, no matter how far off, can keep it from tugging at his heartstrings and calling him back home. Second, God calls himself a master. So the question is, how does the recognition of God as master tenderize and transform our hearts? How does the recognition of God as master tenderize and transform our hearts? Well, it's interesting that scripture uses this master-slave language often when talking about our former bondage to sin. Uh, For example, Romans 6.20 says that by nature we are slaves to sin. And similarly, Titus 3.3 says that by nature we are slaves to various passions and pleasures. I mean, by nature, by nature, we're like the Israelites in Egypt. We're slaves in enemy territory. Except that enemy, that Egypt enslaving us is not somewhere out there, but is in here, within us, in our own flesh, and we can't escape it on our own. And its way leads only to death. But God, And aren't you thankful for all the but gods in scripture? (laughs) But God, who is rich in mercy and great in power, breaks our bonds and sets us free from sin's power over us so that we might follow him as our new master in the way that leads to life. And of course, the way that God does this is in the same way that he freed the Israelites, by a miraculous exodus. Except in this spiritual exodus, we see Jesus in his death parting our sea of sin, which kept us in bondage and which separated us from God's holy Sinai presence. We see Jesus in his death parting our sea of sin and leaving that old master to be swept away behind us, like the pursuing Egyptians who perished as the waves came crashing back down upon them. And it gets even better. Because Romans 6.18 says that those who have been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness, which, which means righteousness now rules us. Righteousness now owns us, and that's because our new master is a righteous master. Knowing God as master and understanding that it took nothing short of a miraculous exodus to free us from our old master and the way that led to death and seeing that it's now righteousness that owns us ought to wring every drop of irreverence toward God out of our hearts, moving us to adoration and praise 
like Moses and the Israelites after the Exodus who immediately broke out in song together, singing of God's glorious triumph and supernatural deliverance. Third, God calls himself the Lord of hosts. So the question is, how does the recognition of God as Lord of hosts tenderize and transform our hearts? How does the recognition of God as Lord of hosts tenderize and transform our hearts? Well, the word hosts is translated from the Hebrew word sabaoth, which means armies, and which refers to God's massive army of angels. And this reality that God commands a massive angel army is great and comforting news for those who are on God's side, but terrifying news for those who are against him. And scripture says that by nature we are against God. Romans chapter five verse 10 says that by nature we are enemies of God. We're enemies of God because by nature we don't want a God over us under whose lordship and law we must submit. By nature, we want to be our own God, ruling ourselves and judging ourselves and exalting ourselves. Now hold that thought right here. Think with me about the night of Jesus' arrest. Do you remember what happened? Judas came to Jesus with a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. And then Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And then Peter, good old Peter, drew his sword and cut off the right ear of one of the chief priest's servants, Malchus. And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter in that moment? He said, Peter, put away your sword and Matthew 26, verses 53 through 54. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, Jesus did not call down his father's angel army to rescue him in his darkest hour, but rather he willfully gave himself up to his enemies to, by way of the cross, reconcile some of those very enemies to God, making them friends of God, in other words, the sword, the sword of divine justice and wrath which we, God's enemies, deserved and which Malchus experienced just in an infinitesimal fraction of that sword in all its fury fell upon the sun that we might escape judgment rather than perish in our sins and that we might come to stand with God rather than against him and that we might become friends of God and, and the ones his angel army now protects rather than targets. Knowing God is the Lord of hosts and understanding that in order to make us friends of God and the ones his angel army now protects, Jesus had to halt that angel army and give himself over to be murdered. This ought to make us fall on our faces before him. Like the angels, the, the elders before his throne in Revelation chapter four, casting our crowns before him, ascribing all honor and glory and power unto him. Amen. This ought to make us surrender every unredeemed inch of ourselves over to him, that, that no part of us would continue to stand against him and his purposes, which ultimately would be to stand against ourselves before he, because he is for us in every way. And finally, God calls himself a great king. So the question is, how does the recognition of God as great king tenderize and transform our hearts? How does the recognition of God as great king tenderize and transform our hearts? 
Let me tell you a quick little story. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was watching a debate on YouTube, and uh, one of the debaters, Jordan Peterson, who's a clinical psychologist and not a Christian, he shared something really interesting. He shared about a dream he once had where he found himself in a cemetery of an old church and all of a sudden all the graves began to open and all of the great kings of history began to crawl out of the ground and then began to fight each other. But then, he says in his dream, Christ appeared and immediately all these kings stopped fighting and bowed themselves before him. And of course, Jordan Peterson, who's you know, not a Christian, really big on guys like Carl Jung, interprets his dream psychologically rather than theologically, but what I love about his dream is that it perfectly illustrates what the Bible tells us about Christ, that he is the great king of kings, the king before whom even kings bow. And what is amazing, what is so amazing, is that in love, this very king stepped off his throne and took on human flesh and came into our world that was drowning and dying in sin. And in every way, in every way, from his, from his birth in a filthy manger to his washing of his disciples' filthy feet to his being beaten and cursed and spat upon and then hung on a cross where he wore, as it were, our filthy rags of sin, so that we might wear his royal robe of righteousness in every way. In every way, Jesus lowered and emptied himself by becoming a humble servant in order to give a filthy, sin-stained people greater riches of glory than any king of the earth could ever even dream of. And it gets even better. Because, you know, in the kingdoms of this world, when you come into a new kingdom and under the rule of a new king, there's still a separation between the king and his subjects, right? Not just anyone has access to the king. <laughs> but with the king of kings, in God's kingdom, there is no separation. And all have free access to the king 24-7. For the veil has been torn and we, his people, are now called his temple as he has established his throne in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Knowing God as a great king, the king of kings, this humble servant king who, like the prince and the pauper, took on our filth in exchange for his glory in every way and who rules us not only by his scepter but also by his spirit. Man, I don't even know what to say other than this, is, this has got to move us to just worship him with all that we have and are because he is so unbelievably worthy. Wow, he is so worthy. And so in our passage this morning, we see that God wants his people to worship him rightly. And so with the intention of moving our hearts to worship, God gives us a reminder of who he is. Father, master, Lord of hosts, great king. Which in turn reminds us of who we are in him. His children who were once orphans and his slaves of righteousness who were once slaves of sin, and his friends who were once his enemies, and his royal subjects who were once filthy and had no right to draw near his throne. Knowing who God is and humbly recognizing the grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace that has found us, making us who we now are, is the only thing in this universe, the only thing in this universe which will truly tenderize and transform our hearts, moving us away from that worshipless kind of worship 
that just shows up and goes through the motions and then leaves thinking, okay, good, I checked off that box for the week, to coming into the presence of the holy God and being unable to hold our hearts back from exploding out of our chests in an eruption of worship and moving us away from a painted holiness where we appear very clean on the outside and where we like to think of all the good things we've done for God and where we think that our heart for God is our gift to God to a real holiness where we are clean on the inside and where we simply stand in awe of all the good things God has done for us and where we see that our heart for God is God's gift to us and moving us away from an ugly, begrudging, entitled, exasperated attitude which makes us about as spiritually lifeless as Ezekiel's valley of dry bones to a passionate, praising people who are made alive by God's goodness and who feast on his word and who are deeply satisfied in him. Malachi's second wake-up call is inviting us this morning to behold, to behold this awesome, orphan-adopting, slave-freeing, enemy-befriending, filthy-clothing God who sent us a good shepherd and brought us into his flock even when we, in and of ourselves, were no more acceptable to God than those blind and lame and sick animals. Behold this awesome, orphan-adopting, slave-freeing, enemy-befriending, filthy-clothing God who sent us a spotless lamb and covered us in his blood, even when we were dripping with a disgusting, painted holiness. Behold this awesome, orphan-adopting, slave-freeing, enemy-befriending, filthy-clothing God who sent us a great high priest who gave us access into his holy presence even when the proverbial doors of worship could have justly been shut forever. Behold this awesome, orphan-adopting, slave-freeing, enemy-befriending, filthy-clothing God who sent us Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For us, even when our joyless and hardened and ugly hearts begrudged his worship, Cedarholm, behold this awesome God. Behold this awesome God we serve and may his great name, his name that is becoming great among the nations, may that name become great in us. Not only upon our lips and not only on Sunday mornings, but within our hearts each day and every hour because he is so worthy. He is so worthy, amen? Amen. Let me pray for us and after I finish praying, if you'll stick around just for a few minutes, the elders have an announcement for the church, okay? Let me pray. Lord God, I ask that you might be pleased to give us fuller and deeper and more glorious visions of who you are. That more and more we would see and understand just how majestic and holy and excellent and awesome you really are, Lord. Lord, forgive us of all the ways we've exalted ourselves, for for all the ways we've found ourselves sitting on top of your royal throne where where you alone belong and seeking to steal glory away from your great name. Lord, forgive us for all the ways we've brought worship to you. We've brought our offerings to you with an unworshipful attitude, Lord. 
Lord, you are so gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And as we sang earlier this morning, no praise is high enough, no thanks is deep enough, no life is long enough to tell of all you've done, no shout is loud enough, no words are strong enough, no song is sweet enough to sing your love. And that is the truth, Lord. We love you, Lord. Exalt your great and holy name within us for your glory alone. Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Love you. So good to see you. Thank you uh, for joining us online. Uh, If you are a member here or uh, have ever filled out a connection card, you should have gotten an email uh, this week uh, from me kind of explaining some things that are going on in our lives. and I wanted, I realize not everybody is on that list, and so I just kind of wanted to briefly reiterate what's, what's happening. Um, I want to tell you about what God has been doing in my life and heart and Cindy's life and heart really over the past year or so. Um, we've been here for 13 years, and we love this church, and we, we love you. And... Um, we have been praying about what is God's desire for us and for this church uh, moving forward. And recently, uh, God revealed it to, to Cindy and I in, in his timing that uh, it is time for me to step down as the lead pastor here. And I wanted to be clear that um, it's, it's not for any bad reasons. You don't need to try to read between lines or anything like that. There's no uh, moral failure or hard feelings, or it's, and it's not because things aren't going well here. I was talking to one of my friends, and he said, it's so refreshing to hear about a pastor stepping down for good reasons, um, not because of a, a moral feeling or something. And I'm like, yeah, well, praise God. Um, the, the reality is uh, I am very excited about where things are um, at with our church and how God is moving in and through you guys. I did want to share with you just kind of what's what's prompting this and kind of the main reasons how uh, that we came to this conclusion. Um, the first one is this, being a lead pastor is a really hard job. And I'm 38, and I started this job when I was 31 or 32. And um, I remember when I took this job, everybody's like, don't worry, it's just like youth ministry. And I'm like, oh, okay, just like youth ministry. If this job was simply preaching, which I love to do, and loving on people, which I love to do, uh, that would be great. But the reality is you guys only see about one hour of what I do during the week, and there is a whole other ass part of this life which, which, which I'm thankful for and is a privilege, but it all is also a very difficult job, and it is a stressful job, and really only Cindy and me and God know um, exactly what all uh, that has looked like in our life, but I've realized that I have not, um, I don't like the way that it has hindered my family. Um, that it is, I'm, I'm 38, I'm going into my 40s. I don't want to go, I want to serve in ministry for many more years if it's God's will. I don't want to be a burned out pastor uh, by the time I'm 40 and keep going downhill. I want to be, I want to give my family my best. I want to give my wife my best. I want to give my kids my best, especially as they're entering their teen years. If you see on my Facebook uh, page or, and I've got a list of priorities, God, wife, family, church, pastor. That's, that's it. My identity is not in being a pastor. I'm just a guy. And I'm so thankful for the ministry I've had here. But uh, kind of as we were talking about last week about how we have to make priorities in life. And a lot of times we have to choose the best things amidst a lot of good things. And, uh, and so for me at this point, I, uh, Cindy and I really believe that it is God's will uh, for us to, to head into a new season. Um, that this is the right step for us and for the church. Because what you need is a healthy pastor who's who's thriving and can pour uh, his love and energy into the church the way God wants him to. Um, and so that, and at the same time, um, I'll just say this, it hasn't been like one big thing that's pointed us to this. It's been just a lot of different things. God's been nudging us uh, this way. Um, 
You know, we've been apart from our biological family for 13 years, and if, you, if you've been around, you know that we use our vacation every year to drive to Wyoming and see our family, and uh, it is appealing to us to think about, man, what if we used our vacation for vacation, and we were able to see our family during the year, and our kids actually knew their grandparents, and our kids actually knew their aunts and uncles and their cousins. And we've been okay with not having that. Um, a big, I would say a big moment for me in rethinking this though was when my nephew, my 13-year-old nephew got cancer and almost died a few years ago. And that was a real wake-up call to me as far as thinking. I remember thinking, sitting in the, uh, the, the waiting room and thinking, what kind of relationship do I want me and my wife and my kids to have with my family? Um, because whether Eli lives or whether he dies, man, I would love, for, I would love to be closer to my family if, if that's God's will for us, because life is short, <laughs> life is short. And sometimes we have seasons where we can't be close to family and, and praise God, if you've got a family that you like being around, because that's not the case for everybody, right? But, um, and so we've kind of had that on the back burner. And at the same time, it's not the kind of thing we we're just going to force through and say, because we don't believe that this is the most important thing to be near family at all costs. We don't believe that. But that has kind of guided our prayers uh, between this wrestling with the the stress of, of this position and the desire to be f closer to family, we're like, God, we don't know. Uh, the economy is not real good right now. We don't know what your will is for us, but this is our prayer. We're happy to be here as long as you call us to be here. If it's your will for us to take another position, secular or in ministry, where it would be less stress, where I would be able to invest fully in my family as they enter the next 10 years or, uh, of their life um, so that I can be present with them when I'm present with them. Uh, if, if that's your will, we need you to open that door because we can't make that happen on our own. And, um, and so basically, um, we prayed that prayer and after a year of praying that prayer, God opened the door and made it very clear that, uh, that uh, this is his, his will for us. There was a, a position opened up in Colorado, which is 20 minutes from where my brother lives and Eli lives, and, and uh, it's four hours from where all our family lives in, in Casper, and it's an associate pastor position for um, family and student life where I could minister to college through birth age ages and lead that ministry and that's something if you know me I mean that's what I went to seminary for that's something I'm still passionate about and we really believe that God um, is calling us to us that they, they, they had a hundred candidates and they narrowed it down to us and and so we're like wow okay um, and and we have great peace about it and I just want to say this we're not itching to leave you. <laughs> we love you. We love this church. Um, no one will ever replace you. Um, no one would ever replace me, I hope, in your life. And I, I think as you look for another pastor, don't look for, well, this person's not Pastor Dan. We're all different. God's going to bring somebody here who's the right person for this season in ministry. And as long as we keep as a church our priorities right, we're going to keep the word centered. We're going to keep love and, and gracious hospitality centered. Uh, we trust that just as God is calling us to a new ministry, God is also going to call a new man to this ministry here. And just as Dylan um, preached this morning, listen, this is not just talk at the end of the day. God is the holy king of the universe, and this is his church. Amen. Hear that? This isn't my church. This isn't, this, the, the church rests on Jesus. He is the great shepherd. He is the one who creates the church and sustains the church. I am transient. You are transient. And so um, pastors come and go. Jesus remains the same. Okay? That's, that is the truth. Um, so... It is with heavy hearts we say this. Uh, we're not a, we, we love you guys. We do, uh, this is kind of what it looks like for us going forward. Um, our last Sunday here is gonna be ne November 8th. I'm gonna preach the next four Sundays, God willing. And, um, and we're not rushing to get out of here, but we do have a house to sell. We do have, a, and honestly, I'm not crazy about driving through the mountain passes <laughs> 
when it gets super snowy. So I would like to get over the mountain passes before it gets terrible, if God, if God allows us to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, our plan is to move in November, December. It's in God's hands. But uh, the elders and the leaders, deacons and staff have already kind of been walking us through this the past few weeks. And um, it is not an announcement I'm pumped to announce, but I am excited, honestly. I say this. Uh, one of, one, some of my good friends, I'm not going to name them, but have said this about me. One of my strengths and one of my weaknesses is that I overthink things. And I'll tell you, this decision was not something I made flippantly. This is a decision Cindy and I took a lot of time to pray and think about, to seek God's will, not only for our good, but for the best for Cedar Home moving forward. And we feel confident that our sovereign God is orchestrating all of this. And um, I want to, is Dan Olson here? Dan? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Dan Olson's our chairman of our elders, and he wanted to add some thoughts as well. Well, I wanted the first words from the leadership of the church to be that of thanks and gratitude. We have appreciated the ministry of Dan and Cindy in our church, and I wanted you to know that uh, when we went through the process of calling them, I think it was 2007, we asked them, could you at least give us four years? That was what we wanted. We want the youth that are just starting in the program to have that youth pastor for four years. And they stayed three times as long as that commitment. So we really are filled with gratitude and thanks. We also want you to know that we see this as God's leading. So if God is leading them to a new ministry, then God is going to be leading someone to us. And so we're confident of that and we are looking at this as an opportunity for our church to grow and to be able to do some introspective work and look at, well, just who are we and who do we feel God will be leading us? So just to briefly describe what this process will look like, we intend to form what's called a calling committee, a search committee. It would be a representative group of you, the members of the church, who would then be tasked with the responsibility of finding a candidate. The elders will be involved in that in a supervisory role and, and the Constitution and bylaws directs that the elders bring that candidate to the church for a vote. What's unknown is how long that will take. It could be several months, and it could be even more than that. It could be years. We, we don't know, but that's where you come in with the ability to pray and to support as we uh, look into that future. So, there will be a number of meetings after church in the next, next few months. Some of those meetings will be business meetings where we need to deal with items of business. Some of those meetings will be farewells. So at this point, we plan to have a farewell on Sunday the 8th, the, as he announced is his last Sunday, we plan to do a farewell. But in this new environment, we don't really know what that will look like because farewells for Baptists are always around food, right? <laughs> and we, won't, we, we don't think we're going to be able to do that, but we will come up with a, a plan and we'll let you know what that will look like. And so, uh, after the service on Sunday the 8th, we will have some kind of a gathering and we'll let you know more about that. Um, another item of business that I would like to place before you is that the elders have nominated Chris Meyer to be uh, on the elder board. And that is an official announcement. Uh, that vote will occur on Sunday, November 1st, after the service. So just like we've done just now, there'll be a, a brief moment, and then we'll bring everyone together that is going to be voting on that proposal, and then we'll have the vote. So that will be Sunday, November 1st, 
And Chris Meyer is uh, a man who has been on the elder board before. But if you have questions for him, if you have concerns that you'd like to express, you can direct them to him or you can send them to the church office and we'll make sure that Chris gets those. Okay. Let's stand in prayer. Father, our hearts are filled with gratitude for the years that Dan and Cindy have given. We're thankful that Jackson and Grace and Josiah joined them while they were here. And we just pray your blessing on them as they conclude things with us and then anticipate taking up a ministry with another congregation. And Lord, we just ask your blessing on them, but we also ask your blessing on our church as we begin that process of finding the one that you have chosen for us to be our next pastor. And we believe and have confidence that that entire process will be guided by you who are the true leader of our church. Thank you for this time this morning and may you bless us as we go now in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>